1: wherever you get your podcasts. In
0: 1788, on a Philadelphia street, a joyous celebration was instantly transformed into a violent scene when an angry mob turned upon its participants and seized the most famous member of the crowd, a man named James Wilson. A mob of 20 or so people threw Wilson down and began kicking him. His crime? Wilson had supported the Constitution. In fact... It had a big role in creating the document. A fiery orator with a Scottish burr, James Wilson had been one of the strongest advocates for document. He felt like the majority of those who had joined him in the summer before in the Constitutional Convention, that a national, strong government was needed to see our independent United States of America last more than a few years. The mob of anti-feds, as those opposed to the Constitution were called, didn't see it that way. All over the state of Pennsylvania, James Wilson was burned in effigy. And now, this mob was beating him relentlessly. Might have been maimed or killed if it had not been for an old man who had been a soldier in the Revolutionary War who jumped on top of him to shield him from the blows. Such was the mood that existed when the Constitution was created, 220 years ago, this 17th of September. James Wilson was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, in addition to being a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. He spoke more than most delegates in the convention, and much of the Constitution bears the results of his logical construction. But yet, despite that, when one speaks of the Founding Fathers, James Wilson is not the first name to roll off the tongue. That may be in part that Wilson lost much of his money in a land speculation deal, and 18th century folks didn't look highly on bankruptcy, and so his reputation suffered but it does beg the question, who are the founding fathers? It's a phrase commonly used, a useful shortcut. Your history teacher used it. Politicians use it. It's most often used to imply those who created the constitution. And it does seem to make sense that anyone who created the constitution would be a founding father. So who are they then? Who are the founding fathers? Thomas Jefferson. Well, no. Jefferson was in France during the Constitutional Convention and so played no role in the construction of that document. John Adams? He was in England. George Washington? Well, Washington was at the convention, but as the chair of the convention, he deemed it inappropriate to speak. Benjamin Franklin, you might say. Yes, the famous Dr. Franklin was there in the convention, did participate, but Franklin at this point was an 81-year-old. He served More of a symbolic and morale-boosting role. It was an important role, but his specific ideas about government, including having multiple presidents or having a government of unsalaried volunteers, were not taken seriously. Alexander Hamilton, you might say. Well, Hamilton was at the convention, but since voting was by state and the New York delegation was, for the most part, of a different view than Hamilton, he was outvoted in most things. In fact, when he rose to take a position, it was so bold calling for the destruction of state governments, nobody voted on his proposal. So it's hard to say that Hamilton was a significant contributor to the Constitution that we know today. None of the famous names really seem to hold up well in the history of the Constitutional Convention, with one exception, James Madison. Most, but certainly not all, of Madison's ideas contributed to the government we know today, In determining who are the Founding Fathers, must we consider all of the delegates who came down to that brutally hot summer of 1787 and spent four months with only a 10-day recess working out a document? Men like the aforementioned Wilson or Elbridge Gerry, who would later create the concept of gerrymandering as he moved to stay in power by organizing favorable election districts. Boston merchant Nathaniel Gorman, an avid supporter of national government, though he thought the U.S. wouldn't last more than 150 years. The brilliant Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Rufus King, who came to Philadelphia with doubts and thought the body had no credibility, but came out deeply supporting its work. There were the two sets of family members who came as delegates, Governor, his first name, and Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, and Charles and Charles coteworth Pickney of South Carolina. There was Gunning Bedford of Delaware and William Patterson of New Jersey, both of whom spoke forcefully on behalf of small states? Could we leave out delegates like Jared Ingersoll, who, although he attended the convention, did not utter one recorded word the entire time? Or William Blout, who spoke only at the end to say that he disagreed with the Constitution but would vote so that it was unanimous among the attending states? Should we, among the founding fathers, include men like Robert Yates of New York, or Luther Martin of Maryland who left the convention once they saw the shape it was going, but nonetheless contributed to the discussion for the time that they attended? Should we include the other 14 who didn't sign the Constitution even though they attended the convention? Should we count the New Hampshire delegates, John Langdon and Nicholas Gilman, who arrived three months late and only after most of the important questions of the founding of the nation had been decided? It does bring up questions, and one might simply say, look, we'll accept that anyone who was in that building in 1787 was a founding father. And that would mean that 55 persons are in that category, and you've already got more founding fathers than you probably imagined when we started this discussion. And even then, I might ask you, why call them founding fathers? Well, you might answer, because these are the men who developed the document, the Constitution that gives us the freedoms we have today. Actually, though, they didn't. These 55 persons voted down a Bill of Rights, so should I include those responsible for freedom of speech, freedom of the press, right to bear arms, right to assemble as part of the Founding Fathers? Yes, you might say. Should I include men like Patrick Henry and Henry Lee, well-known patriots who spoke out against the Constitution as their opposition forced a Bill of Rights to be added to the document? Should I add compromisers like John Hancock who agreed partially because he thought he might become the nation's first president, to support the Constitution with certain amendments, causing Massachusetts to ratify the document and setting an example for the other big states. Should I count James Monroe, who as a 30-year-old attended the Virginia ratifying convention to vote no on the Constitution, but then who as a 60-year-old would serve as president, swear oath to that document? Should I add the first Congress serving in New York under the Articles of Confederation, the first document that founded this country, who agreed to have the convention in the first place? Do I add all the people who in 13 constitutional conventions held in each of the states at that time, who agreed to ratify the document, since many of the conventions contributed understanding, interpretation to the Constitution, and amendments that would be added to the document by Congress. I can do all that, although I must warn you, we're now up to at least 400 and maybe 500 founding fathers, and I still can't use Adams or Jefferson. Unless I add all those who voiced opinions to others in support of the document, as they both did. Adams wrote a whole book with constitutional models that many delegates read prior to attending the Philadelphia Convention. I should probably also add as Founding Fathers all the early presidents, starting with Washington, who defined that office, and the Supreme Court members who interpreted the constitutional law. The Founding Fathers now number in the thousands. There is no building or structure that existed in 1787 that could fit all the people who deserve some credit, who deserve to be in some way a Founding Father. But since the Constitution, that now 220-year-old document, is the main document that founded our nation, let's drill down a bit and look at the construction of the Constitution. What happened in that Federal Convention 1787? Who did it and why? The colonies, after winning independence from England, formed only a confederation of independent states. It was an agreement to work together, but this combined government had very weak powers that any state could override. Soon there were disputes over borders, over protection, over paying debts from the war, and taxes. States were taxing each other, and each state issued its own money. This all came to a hilt when a depression and an inflation of currency hit the former colonies, and episodes such as Shays' Rebellion, where farmers in Massachusetts were ignoring the law of the land. All of this was very much on the minds of thinkers of that day. There was interest in doing something to change the Articles of Confederation. An early meeting in Annapolis, Maryland, broke up without any result other than that there should be another meeting. The Congress, which existed under the Articles of Confederation and met in New York, asked that there be a convention to revise the Articles of Confederation. That was the only mandate they were given. The mandate did not include instructions to construct a new government. And so in May of 1787, At the Philadelphia State House, delegations from most of the 13 states, except Rhode Island and New Hampshire, sent by their state legislatures, would start to arrive. They were generally men of property, the most powerful, the most notable people in the nation. They were certainly the elite. Thomas Jefferson, upon hearing the list of attendees, called them demigods. And John Adams agreed. It would be fair to say that this meeting was as if Warren Buffett, Donald Trump, Bill Gates, and others sat down to debate the future of the nation. Popular sentiment was suspicious of this meeting of elites. In Virginia, patriot Patrick Henry refused to join, saying he smelled a rat. Indeed, the very first decision of this body would be seen as absolutely horrid in today's open politics. The body decided that the meeting would be secret. The doors to the chamber were closed each day and sentries were posted at the door. Not a word was to escape, no one was to share notes, and the rule was enforced vigorously. It is not correct to think that they simply waltzed into this meeting and came out with a brilliant document. The story of that four months is one of compromise, badgering, persuading, condemning, and finally putting words to paper. It was a great event. It certainly was. But one shouldn't over-romanticize it either. The end work was in some ways a frustrating compromise for most. Most didn't get what they wanted quarter of the delegates who worked on the document didn't sign it. Far from executing a brilliant work of governmental construction in one shot, these convention delegates had many ideas that were left on the table. There could have been multiple presidents, there could have been a government of volunteers as Ben Franklin wanted, the states could have retained all power as William Patterson wanted, or been destroyed as Hamilton wanted could have been carved up into equal-sized states so that none would have advantage over the other. There could have been one branch of Congress to represent wealth and property. There could have been life terms for all federal offices, one house of Congress instead of two, three-year terms for senators, a president that served for seven years or life. A Supreme Court that simply worked for the president. Or no federal courts at all, with everything referred to the state level. There could have been a law that limited the number of western states to no more than the number of eastern ones. This nation's capital could have been in Annapolis, Maryland, York, Pennsylvania, or Trenton, New Jersey. Of course, nobody even suggested the humid spot our capital now sits in. Even the southern delegates in that hot building were pushing for a cooler northern capital.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Unanimously, the convention decided to elect George Washington to be chair of the meeting. Washington had debated coming. Since the end of the Revolution, 1783, Washington stepped down as commander-in-chief of the American forces and returned to his farm in Mount Vernon. He was observing events, however, and he was convinced that a stronger government was needed by Shay's rebellion. As he wrote to his friend the Marquis de Lafayette of France, I am entering public life again, and it could not be resisted. Washington sat either at the head of the room when the convention was in order, or he sat at the Virginia table when the meeting was in what they call committee mode, a way of having a less formal discussion. In either case, Washington never spoke while the great issues of the country were being hotly debated. Indeed, he only spoke at the end at a very minor point about congressional representation. It cannot be exaggerated that the presence of the hero of the revolution, the most important man in America at the time, made this meeting relevant. And Washington's presence there was critical to the ratification of the convention's findings by the people. After electing a chair, Edmund Randolph, who was then governor of Virginia, began the convention by speaking about the need to replace the Articles of Confederation, come up with a new document. He presented the Virginia Plan, which was crafted by Madison's and others after exhaustive research. It's not the Constitution, the Virginia Plan, but many of the Virginia Plan's parts ended up in the Constitution. In essence, it calls for a new federal government, executive branch, two legislative branches, and a judiciary. After this, the convention made two early decisions. One, they decided to create a first branch of government, which would be called the House of Representatives. And they decided that this branch would be elected by popular vote. They then took the matter up of the executive branch, and specifically how many executives to have. And this is an interesting part of the convention, because as they moved to consider how many persons are going to be an executive, at this moment there's silence in the convention. Everyone knew that the first executive was going to be George Washington. With him sitting there, though he said nothing and had no reaction, many were hesitant to speak. It took Ben Franklin, a man of close reputation to Washington, to encourage delegates to speak their mind, and they did. James Wilson said that there had to be a single executive. Only one person, has the energy and dispatch, Edmund Randolph disagreed, saying that no one man could do the job. Pierce Butler of South Carolina then said it had to be one man. He used the example of the Holland Republic, which suffered, he said, from having too many military heads. Ben Franklin wanted a plural executive. What happens, Franklin said, if there's one person and he dies? The convention didn't agree with Franklin's argument, though they would later add a vice president. The convention was more concerned with having a single executive, so one person was accountable for the job. Then throughout June, various parts of the government are debated. How new states would be admitted to the union was brought up. The amendment process was brought up. The role of judges, or even if there would be federal judges, was brought up. But each of these was put off. The Senate, the second branch of the legislature, was created with little opposition because most of these delegates wanted a counterbalance, a body of brilliant men that could check the House of Representatives they had just created. To encourage state legislatures to get on board with the Constitution and to give them a role, they decided to allow these bodies to pick the senators. Though James Wilson and the Pennsylvania delegation argued 130 years before their time for public election of senators, he was outvoted. Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts spoke for most of the delegates when he said that he favored a branch in which the commercial and moneyed interest would be more secure than by the election of the people at large. An interesting point of view looking at it from today's. On June 15th, one of the great conflicts of the convention began when William Patterson of New Jersey presented the New Jersey Plan. So he had the Virginia Plan, and now Patterson counters with the New Jersey Plan. In part, it was a plan to represent small states. There were definite differences between the two plans, and in the end, the Constitution is neither of them. While the Virginia Plan called for stronger federal government over the states... The Jersey plan preserved the articles, preserved the states. So under the Virginia plan, the federal government supreme, it can veto any any law that a state puts out. The New Jersey plan does not have that. The Virginia plan said that Congress could legislate on any national object. The New Jersey really, plan really limited that. Congress was only there for imports, stamp taxes, making treaties with foreign nations. On the 19th of June, James Madison brought up the New Jersey plan for a vote, and it was defeated. It seemed like a victory for the larger states and a loss for the small states. The convention now thought about a negative, or what we now know as a veto, for the president. Alexander Hamilton proposed an absolute negative. So the president could veto a law and it would never be overturned by the House. This was debated and a two-thirds compromise was established. Roger Sherman of Connecticut again brings the matter of the small states up. His proposed compromise, however, is one that is, in a sense, undemocratic at its core and looks unpleasant even today in some respects. According to Sherman, each state would get one vote in the Senate, while the House could be according to population. This would give the small states more of a voice. People from the large states were outraged by this proposal. It was undemocratic. People would get more representation than they deserve. Sherman's proposal is voted down. But as we move along here in July, tensions are rising. The small states don't feel like they're getting anywhere with this meeting. They make the point that there's not going to be any union without a compromise. Large state representatives were annoyed by this constant call for extra representation from the small states. They felt that using the threat of leaving the meeting to propose unequal representation was not right. Madison attacks Connecticut for not paying its war debt. Oliver Ellsworth of that state countered by saying that his small state had paid the war debt with soldiers, more soldiers than Virginia gave. Gunning Bedford of Delaware threatened that his state might look to a foreign power if they were not protected by the Constitution. At this point, one delegate, Robert Yates of New York, just leaves the convention and not to return. Things are getting ugly. Benjamin Franklin says things were so heated... There were more nay votes than A votes, and he called for a preacher to begin each meeting. The convention couldn't even take action on that. George Washington says nothing publicly, but privately, tells Hamilton he's most despaired, and that the situation has reached a crisis. Slowly but surely, however, there were delegates on either side who wanted to solve the problem. Three different committees were formed to look at the matter of the small states and the large states, and over the next two weeks, they would meet, work out proposals and compromises. The suggestion is made to give two members of the Senate for each state and in return allow only the House, the body with the most popular representation, to originate bills involving money. Then in a very close vote, five states for, four states against, one state divided, the compromise is pushed through. The large state and small state compromise of the Constitutional Convention is interesting. Because the big players of the convention, Madison, Hamilton, Randolph, Wilson, had nothing to do with it. This wasn't part of the plan. Not part of the Virginia plan. Wasn't one of the things they set out to do at the beginning. It was a victory of the small guys. Delegates whose names you don't hear much about anymore. And delegates from the large states were hopping mad about this for a day. And there was talk about doing their own confederation rather than tolerating this compromise. But that talk didn't last, and after the compromise, work began at a healthier pace. Convention decided to allow one congressman in the House of Representatives for every 40,000 inhabitants, along with a census every 10 years to determine representation. Uh, There's the infamous three-fifth compromise, allowing southern states the right to count slaves as three-fifths of a person. There is some debate from northern delegates with uh, Governor Morris... Pennsylvania calling slavery a nefarious institution. Uh, then there's a defense of slavery from Charles Pickney. But in the end, there wasn't a lot of heat on the issue. Rufus King of Massachusetts reflected the majority when he called slavery simply a political problem only. Part of the Virginia plan to give Congress a veto over state laws fails in a vote, and in its place, uh, delegates suggest a sentence making federal laws supreme. So, the federal government cannot overrule a state law, but if the federal government makes a law, it's supreme. Again, not part of Madison's plan, not part of the Virginia plan compromise, but, but a compromise that would become part of the Constitution. The idea of uh, allowing the president to be reelected is now taken up. Both the Virginia and the New Jersey plans had called for making the president unreelectable. He gets one term and that's it. But as delegates thought and debated, they decided it would make the executive branch stronger. If you allowed the executive to be reelected, and would also avoid the case of a president with no motivation or care, how you vote for the president's decided, there's a total of 60 votes on this matter over the time of the convention. Five times delegates had actually voted to have the president elected by Congress, then by state legislatures. No one was quite happy with either system. Rufus King, William Patterson, and James Madison proposed election of the president by the people instead of Congress. And they like the idea of using electors, the electoral college that we know, from each state to meet and decide that states vote for the presidency to avoid differences in voting laws between states. By August, there is a brief recess in which the delegates, um, a few of the delegates stayed behind the committee of detail to finish up minor points and to start to consolidate a document from from all the debating that had gone on. Many of the delegates went home. George Washington did not. He actually stopped by to visit his old camp at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. This is now 10 years after the frightening winter of 1777, and he's going back. uh, And I think for Washington, it was actually something of a nostalgia experience, but also a bit of a morale booster, as he's seeing the area where his soldiers fought for the country that they're now working on. Upon return, the Congress takes up the issue of immigration, and office holders. Remember, the United States had originally no immigration laws, so the question was when could someone be a congressperson or a senator if they'd just immigrated to the United States. So, aware that many members of the convention were English, Irish, Scots-Irish, and Hamilton was born in the West Indies. They were fairly congenial. They did place a seven-year limit on running for the House and a nine-year for running for Senate, and the president, it was decided, could not be foreign-born. They felt that would ensure that the person with the executive power could not be someone who was outside, from outside the country. They also voted to have a federal capital that would be 10 miles square, but they did not decide where it was. After some debate, they decided that federal officers must take an oath and that no religious test should be mandated for government service, a decision which gives some foundation to the idea of separation between church and state. One of the final debates was how the constitution was to be ratified. In other words, now they've met in a room, how are they going to get the approval of the country for this document? James Wilson suggested a simple majority of seven states. If seven states ratify it, it passed. He did not want a few states to ruin it for others, especially considering that the state of Rhode Island had not even come to the federal convention. They're already dealing with a with a 12-state universe here. Delegate Daniel Carroll of Maryland wanted unanimity, which to many seemed to be a way of guaranteeing that the Constitution wouldn't be ratified. In the end, they compromised on nine. Nine states of the 13 could ratify the Constitution. That way, a few states couldn't hold it up, but they had to get most of the states. Who would ratify? That was another question. States legislatures or popular election? As in the case of the presidential election, the founders didn't want to give state legislatures... This particular power but also didn't want to hand it over directly to popular election. So it was decided that a group of people called a Constitutional Convention would form in each of the 13 states and that that Constitutional Convention could ratify the Constitution. The members then debated and voted down a Bill of Rights. It seems strange now looking back, but the convention at the time, that group of people in that building in Philadelphia, saw themselves as doing serious political business here and look down at the Bill of Rights as kind of a nonsense document. The checks and balances of government, not a statement of rights, would provide protection for the people. Roger Sherman said, No Bill of Rights ever bound a supreme power stronger than a newlywed in his honeymoon. No Webster, a supporter of the Constitution, who would of course complete the Great American Dictionary, ridiculed the idea of a Bill of Rights, saying Congress could also guarantee the right of people to eat, fish, and lay on their side whenever they wanted. The Bill of Rights was voted down. And so on September seventeenth, seventeen eighty 1787, 39 of the 53 delegates signed the Constitution. After the signing, members retired to the city tavern and had dinner, and then went on their ways. The document they signed was short so that it could be printed in newspapers and understood by the widest group of people. Our Constitution is only seven articles. It still pales in comparison to other countries' founding documents. The European Union's Constitution is hundreds of pages. And with these seven articles, they finished a framework for a national government and got ready to sell it in in their various states. Yet, from our perspective, there still was a lot missing, from the September 17th document. It did not do many of the things we think it does. It did not create a Supreme Court that could review laws and declare them unconstitutional. It simply gave the court the right to hear federal cases. It did not guarantee your speech, your right to bear arms, your right to a trial, the very things that people think of when they invoke the word Constitution. That all would come later. So in the all-important Virginia Ratification Convention, supporters of the Constitution swung over some people who had been on the fence or who were seemed against the Constitution because of the lack of the Bill of Rights by promising that if they voted for the Constitution, the Congress would then immediately amend the Constitution and add to that document a Bill of Rights protecting individual rights. So what was seen as unnecessary by those meeting in the Federal Convention, became essential after the Constitution was put out there and public opinion was heard, and newspapers, the media of that day, were discussing it and clamoring for a Bill of Rights. And sure enough, in the first year of the new Federal Congress under the Constitution, James Madison, true to his word, introduced the amendments we know today as the Bill of Rights. And it is that ancillary document, not the first one, that most people think of most of the time they refer To the term the Constitution. It's easy to see how while the term founding fathers is a a useful shortcut and the idea of a bunch of folks getting together in a building and crafting a document and getting it all right at once seems all too tempting, the reality is just a little different. The constitutional process was an organic one. It was a political process. Many of these battles are still being fought today. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson at the birthday of the Constitution.